So we've been doing a series uh, for a number of weeks now, through Advent anyway, on humility and on the humility of Christmas. And uh, we want to reinforce that this morning. This is a day we should probably talk about this topic. And so if you want to have a Bible in front of you, you can turn to Philippians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be reading from. Um, But it's also printed for you in your worship folder. It's on the screen behind me. And if you're watching from home, it should be on your screen as well. Uh, This is a familiar text. In fact, we've already preached from this text once this year. But it's one of those texts that probably you, you can stand to come back to maybe every few months or so. So I, th- I don't think we will run out of things to talk about. Let's read together, beginning in verse 5 from Ephesians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, Paul writes, who, that is Jesus, he's talking about Jesus now, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. You say with me, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Philippians 2 is a Christmas text, perhaps the Christmas text. It tells us, excuse me, the why and the what and the what now of Christmas, but I'd like to talk through it with you very briefly this morning along the headings uh, that you find in the outline that I've given you. I want to talk about sin from this text, and then talk about salvation from the text, and then talk about sanctification from the text, because I think all three of them are found here, and we we have some things to say about each. Now, let's talk first about sin. Let's talk about the why of Christmas. Why are we here? What is all this about? Why do we, who in the world, why would we come and leave our homes that are nice and toasty and warm with coffee and all of that to come on a cold day and be here to worship? And here is, here's the why of a day like today and the reason why worship is so important. The world was so broken that God had to come into the world from outside of the world to fix it. And the world is as it is because of human sin and rebellion. That's the beginning pages of the scriptures. Mankind was made in the image of God to rule and have dominion over the earth, and yet they and we were not content with anything less than God's place. So they grasped for God-likeness. That was the temptation, remember? The serpent's lie. Do you remember what it was? You shall be like God, he said. If you do this, you will be like God. You can distill all the Bible says about sin into this one thing. It is a grasping for God-likeness. That is the root cause of all that is wrong in the world. Mankind grasping for God-likeness, trying to be like God. That is why the why of Christmas. And so Jen Wilkin, in her book, book None Like Him, she says this. She says, designed to reflect his glory, we choose instead to rival it. We do so by reaching for those attributes that are truly only of God. Rather than worship and trust the omniscience of God, we desire to be all-knowing ourselves. Rather than celebrate and revere his omnipotence, we seek ultimate power in our own sphere of influence. Like our father Adam and our mother Eve, we long for that which is intended only for God, rejecting our God-given limits and craving the limitlessness we foolishly believe we are capable of wielding and entitled to possess. Here's what she means. Made in God's image, there are ways that we are meant to be like God, and then there are ways that we are not meant to be like God. We are to be holy, we are told in the scriptures, because God is holy. We are to be merciful just as he is merciful. We are to love 
each other as he's loved us, but we are not, nowhere will you find, we are not meant to be infinite or omniscient or omnipotent. Those are things that only God is. God as creator is unlimited. We as creatures are limited. He is unlimited. We are limited. Our creatureliness forces us, or it is designed to force us into a posture of dependence and trust and worship and receiving all of the good things of life from him. The serpent, though, tempted the man and the woman toward the desire to be like God in his unlimited divinity. That was the seduction, and that is sin. We are, however, to be like God in our limited humanity. Now, there are two words, and really this is just a, a meditation on two words that show up in this text that are really counterbalances to one another or contrasts. They're in direct conflict here in Philippians 2. Grasping. You see that word in verse 7? Grasping. And then in verse 8, it says, oh, in verse 6, grasping. And then in verse 7, you find the opposite word, emptying. Grasping and emptying. Grasping is the opposite of emptying. Emptying is the opposite of grasping. Sin is grasping after God-likeness, a desire to be God, to be limitless, to do life without him. The woman saw the fruit, and she took it, and she seized it. She grasped it. She held on to it and kept it for herself. And we go through our lives grasping after anything that gives the illusion of limitlessness and control. And all it accomplishes is to make an even bigger mess of things. That's what that's what we need to realize. It may not be obvious, but the things that grant us godlike status that we put our trust in, they do damage to our souls. Money, technology, whatever it might be, if they make us more self-sufficient and less dependent. Let me I have great news this morning. Can I give you some great news? You can't be everywhere for all. You can't fix it all. You can't know it all. We're not meant to repent of not being able to do those things. We're meant to repent for trying to do those things. Grasping after God-likeness leads to a whole life of grasping. That's, that's the point. You go through life grasping, and when you see that word grasping, here's what you ought to think. You ought to think the seagulls and Nemo. The seagulls and Finding Nemo? Remember that? What do they do? Mine, 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 mine. What a perfect, who, somebody from Florida wrote that movie, right? Like, what a perfect picture of how annoying, that seagulls are the selfishest, you know, selfishest, you know what, in the, in the created universe, right? Don't leave a sandwich out, it's gone. Mine, 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 grasping, grasping, grasping. That's the why, because you and I are in such a mess, we have grasped after God-likeness, and so we go through life just grasping after everything. But secondly, then, Let's talk about salvation and the what of Christmas. If human pride, and that's really a function of pride, okay? That's the point. That grasping is pride. If pride is the problem, then listen to um, Andrew Murray. He says, nothing can be our redemption except the restoration of the lost humility, the original and only true relationship of the creator to its God. Now, this text is a technical description of the incarnation, of what we believe actually happened at Christmas. Jesus was God, it says, and yet he was born of a woman, becoming the God-man, living his life in obedience to the Father as a servant to others, and ultimately laying down his life on the cross as a substitute for sinners. And it was an act, as I've said, of cosmic humility that rebroke the broken world. You know, when you have a broken bone, if it sets wrong, what, you have to go to the doctor, and what's the first thing they have to do? They have to re-break it, so that, right? 
that act of cosmic humility rebroke this broken world so that it could be set right again. But notice the words. It says that though he was God, he did not, verse 6, he did not do what? He did not grasp at his godness. That's an amazing phrase. I mean, that should just arrest your attention there. He did not grasp at his godness. That's all we can, can that's all we want to do. And yet this one, he did, he did not do the very thing we are so desirous to do. He did not grasp at his godness. That's the way we describe sin, remember. Instead, it says in the very next word, verse, instead of grasping, he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. His humility is our salvation. So scholars have debated this word, emptied. It's, it's emptied in the ESV, right? I got that right? He, made, he, he emptied himself, verse 7. Some translations say he made himself nothing. And scholars have debated exactly what this means. How did Jesus empty himself? Well, B.B. Warfield, the old Princeton theologian at the turn of the 20th century, in my opinion, gave the definitive answer. He said that this cannot mean, because some have argued this, that, that Jesus emptied himself of his, of his divinity. He was God, and then he was born, and he was no longer God. That's not, that's not the case. He said, um, he said it can't be that Jesus emptied himself of his divinity. In the incarnation, Jesus did not stop being God. Instead, he started being a servant. He did not shed his divine nature or form, verse 6. You'll see that word comes up over and over again in these verses, form. He did not shed his divine nature or the form of God. He assumed a human form, verse 8. Jesus did not empty himself of his godness, and here's the brilliance of B.B. Warfield. He says, that must mean that he emptied himself of self. Remember our definition of humility? It's the disappearance of the self and the vision and understanding that God is all. It's the displacement of the self in the enthronement of God. Humility self-forgetfulness. And what Warfield just sorts here. I'm going to quote quite a bit. Forgive me. I, I don't know how to improve on what he says. But here's how he put it. He says, he who was in the form of God took such thought for us that he made no account of himself. Into the immeasurable calm of the divine blessedness, he permitted this thought to enter, I will die for man. And so mighty was his love, so colossal his divine purpose to save that he thought nothing of his divine majesty. He thought nothing of his unsullied blessedness, nothing of his equality with God, but absorbed in us our needs, our misery, our helplessness. He, he did not cultivate self, even his divine self. He was not led by his divine impulses out of the world. He was led by his love for others into the world to, listen to this, forget himself in the needs of others. To sacrifice self once and for all on the altar of sympathy. And I just wrote, amazing. So when Paul says, have this mind among you, verse 5, that mind, the one who forgot himself in the needs of others, he assumes that that life that characterized Jesus can be ours as well, that we can share in, in that humility. But we have to distinguish here between his work and his person, okay? Okay. And this is the point I want to make. Here's what I mean. The emptying and not grasping of the incarnation was a work that Jesus accomplished. His humiliation, his, his willingly coming down from heaven to earth, living an obedient life of saying yes to the Father's will and no to his own desires all throughout his life, right? If the sin of Adam was not your will but mine be done, then of course Jesus, the second Adam, in the real garden, what did he pray? Not my will, but yours be done. 
right? And so it was a work of serving, not being served, of dying on the cross for our sins. That's the work of emptying. But what I want you to see is it's also characteristic of his person. It is his character. Teenagers, it's his vibe. It describes the kind of person he is. And that's important. It means, it's important because of this. It means that humility is not something you do. Humility is something you are or you aren't. First. It's not something you do. It's something you are or you aren't first. Pride corrupts all our, temp- our attempts at humility. If you try to act humble like Jesus without first being humble like Jesus, you see the problem? Vicky chuckled because that's it, right? If you try to act humble like him without being humble like him, you'll just end up being proud of your humility. Salvation is both the work and the person of Jesus. Listen to Andrew Murray again. I'm going to quote again quite a bit here, but he says, The salvation he makes known is nothing less and nothing else than the communication of his own life and death, his own nature and attitude, his own humility. No outward instruction, no argument, however convincing, no sense of the beauty of humility, however deep, no personal resolve or effort, how sincere or earnest can cast out pride. It is only produced when the new nature in its divine humility takes the place of the old to become our very nature. We received our pride from Adam. We must receive our humility from another also. Pride is ours. It rules in us with terrible power because it is our self, our very nature. Humility must be ours in the same way. It must be our very nature. As natural and easy as it has been to be proud, it must be the same. It will be to be humble because Jesus came into the world not just to dwell with us. He came to dwell in us and to share his very nature with us. Isn't that awesome? We have become, Peter says, partakers of the divine nature. Don't undersell that, 2 Peter 1.4. Don't undersell, he says, we have become partakers of the very nature of the one who's being described in these verses. Humility brought him into the world. He brought humility with him, and it can be yours. And that leads us to the third point, and then we're done. The what now of Christmas, and so sanctification, okay? So let's talk about sanctification to finish up here. And sanctification just refers to the process of becoming more and more like Jesus, to begin to naturally be humble as you have before naturally been proud. And it starts with a mindset. Paul says, verse 5, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now think about your life, he says, the way that Jesus thought about his. Imagine your life as nothing more than a remake of the original. Man, it's weird to get to the age where Hollywood starts remaking the movies that you grew up with as a kid. That is a weird thing. Anybody with me? Can you share in my sorrow over that but we're to think about our life as nothing more than a remake of the original Jesus being the original original that is expect your life to be characterized by emptying not grasping and then eyes wide open he says okay eyes wide open now with a clear clear understanding do nothing from selfish ambition or or conceit that's verses three and four ahead of those verses instead count others more significant than yourselves put others first that's what Paul's Instruction is leading up to this grand, glorious gospel declaration here. Paul Miller says, dying to self shapes the contours of the normal Christian life. And Paul offers quite a contrast in this passage. He says, Jesus was in the form of God, the Trinity, so he was full and overflowing with love and glory between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit forever and ever and ever. And out of that fullness, out of that fullness he emptied himself. 
We, however, we are empty. That's that word conceit in verse 3. It's the same root as in the word in verse 7. We are empty. Our me first attitude, our mine, 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 all of that grasping is an attempt to fill ourselves with the love and the glory that we are, apart from God, without. There's a passage in Screwtape Letters that haunts me where the demon council says this. uh, They contrast good and bad this way. They say, we want to suck in. He, God, the enemy, God, wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. But here's the thing. Here's the good news. Jesus has come to make us participants in the life of God. That is, to give to us in the experience of communion and love with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the same inner fullness, so that from that fullness, we can go through life not grasping, but emptying ourselves for the sake of others. The passage from Warfield I quoted earlier comes from a sermon entitled, Imitating the Incarnation. Think about that, imitating the incarnation. And what, a, what, better, what better thing could we reflect on today? That is the what now of Christmas, that Christ coming into the world will result in us going out into the world, that the manner of his coming would be the manner of our going, that his humble coming would affect our humble going. And so B.B. Warfield, let me just finish with this, describes this difference, and he describes it as a difference between self-denial and self-sacrifice, and I find it really helpful. Listen to the way he puts this. He says, self-denial, so it's not just self-denial he's calling us to, he's calling us to self-sacrifice. He says, self-denial for its own sake, is ascetic. It concentrates our whole attention on self, self self-knowledge, self-control, and so forth. But in doing so, it falls into the sloth of self-seeking, partially concealing the selfishness of its goal. This is really, really profound. He says it narrows, this is self-denial. This is like religious rigor, I'm going to become a good person, right? He says that it, it narrows and contracts the soul, dries up the springs of compassion, and nurses and coddles our self-importance until we grow so great in our own esteem as to be careless of the trials and sufferings, joys and aspirations, strivings and failures, and successes of other people. He says, self-denial, thus understood, would make us cold, hard, unsympathetic, proud, arrogant, self-esteeming, fanatical, overbearing, and cruel. It may make monks and Stoics. It cannot make Christians. He says, it is not to this that Christ's example calls us. He did not cultivate self, even his divine self. He took no account of self. He was not led into the recesses of his own soul to brood morbidly over his own needs. He was led by his love for others into the world to forget himself and the needs of others, as I've read. And self-sacrifice, he says, will lead us, his followers, not away from but into the midst of people. Now listen to this. This is overwhelming, but it's so great. He says, wherever people suffer, there we will be to comfort. Wherever people strive, there we will be to help. Wherever people fail, there we will be to uplift. Wherever people succeed, there we will be to rejoice. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times or our fellows. It means absorption in them. It means forgetfulness of self in others. It means entering into every person's hopes and fears, longings and despairs. It means many-sidedness of spirit, multiform activity, multiplicity of sympathies. It means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives, binding ourselves to a thousand souls by the filaments of so loving a sympathy that their lives become ours. It means... 
that all the experience of men shall smite our souls and shall beat and batter these stubborn hearts of ours into fitness for their heavenly home. Not that we shall undertake it with this end in view, he says. That would dry up its springs at the source. We cannot be self-consciously (laughs) self-forgetful. We cannot be selfishly unselfish. One, when we humbly walk this path, seeking in it not our own things, but those of others, we shall find the promise true, that he who loses his life shall find it. One quarter turn, Vicki Portlock talks about quarter turns. It's been helpful to me. One quarter turn, and it sounds so silly, but I think it's made a big difference in our family over the years on Christmas morning. We begin, uh, we we open our gifts uh, by letting each person in the family give their gifts to everybody else. So everybody, so this emphasis is, the emphasis is on the giving of your gifts to others, not the getting. It's made a huge difference. Christmas is the invitation to grow more and more into the giving, not the grasping. Be careful of that today. To grow more and more into the giving, not the grasping, in light of God's gift, his only son, for the life of the world, but also by the power of the Spirit living in us, restoring to us as image bearers the lost humility of mankind without sin. His humility is our salvation. His salvation is our humility. Amen? Pray with me if you would. So, Father, do come and form in us that beautiful humility that was true of Jesus. May his Spirit... live and thrive in us that we might display the same kind of loving self-sacrifice towards one another that he has shown to us, not going through life grasping, but ourselves going through life emptying, emptying ourselves for the sake of others, going into death for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of love, knowing that the same God who raised Jesus from the dead can come and raise us up as well, that if we go down into whatever death you might call us to, As this text says, as Jesus was raised and given a name that is above every other name, so too we can be sure, Holy Father, that you will come and raise us up. Those who humble themselves will be exalted, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled. So keep us from self-exaltation and pride and shape in us humility and gratitude and joy that we might be people full of good fruit that glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Uh, Terry and Diane and Gio, thanks. Nate, good to see you, man. Welcome home. Thanks for helping us this morning. We appreciate you guys coming out and getting, getting ready to do that for us. Merry Christmas. Hope you have a great day today. Revel in the fact that uh, you are loved by God, so much so that he sent his son into the world uh, for you so that you can live under the truth of these words. So if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, receive this benediction and may it carry you through the celebrations of today. Uh, we're, we're so glad and grateful to be able to have these few moments together this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may he turn his face towards you today, give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace. Amen.